Everyone, welcome to Recovery Crone Podcast. This is the much awaited, as I think we've all heard. I, I've certainly heard. Have you guys heard from other people? Oh, so much buzz. Yeah, around like wanting this part two, which yeah. our first conversation that the three of us had was living with depression. And then we we didn't intend to, but we kind of did a little teaser where we said, oh, we should come back and do learning living with anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And that's when I got more feedback on that podcast. What is that coming out? Um, and so that's what we're here to do today. And, and no, we did not plan for the COVID-19 to hit. <laughs> so. Yeah, this was not prearranged to have our anxiety podcast. Yeah, right. we did not, you know, plan this. And also for those who are listening we are having to do this via Zoom. And so hopefully, um, what we're hoping is that the sound um, will come across equally. If it doesn't, uh, you know, take it to your sponsor. We don't want to hear about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, I kind of like to play host on these things. So we don't really have any sort of you know, agenda except to kind of talk about our experiences of living with anxiety. And so um, why don't we just start with maybe when like chronologically, like kind of, you know, a little bit of what it was like, what happened, what it's like now in the sense of, you know, my, ex I think what people really liked about our depression conversation was First of all, that we were so open and candid about it. And then also what it was like to live with it and then ending with the tools that we've learned. You know, I think that was a lot of the feedback that I got. And so, um, you know, again, if you guys, uh, why don't I just, and you can just sort of take turns around, you know, when do you think you noticed you know, shifting, becoming anxious or anything you guys want to talk about that. And Megan, why don't we start with you? Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to try my best. I feel like, um, for me, anxiety is a harder one to pin down just because it's more, it's always been more present in my life. And it's kind of like this, undercurrent like in my entire life rather than like a major depressive episode is sort of, you know it, it can be debilitating for a time and then you sort of like you know work on it and then heal a little bit or you know move move through it move past it whereas anxiety for me um is pretty ever present and sometimes it's better and sometimes it's worse um and I don't even, and as you were saying that, I was like, man, I don't even remember. I, I think I grew up in a, in an incredibly anxious home. Um, I have, uh, an extremely anxious codependent mother who, um, I'll just say like, does not have any tools for managing her anxiety, but besides trying to control other people, places and things so that she will feel better. 
Um, and so I think it was really um, absorbed into me from, from an early age. Um, and I, I was trying to think of like, are there like milestone moments or things that I, that I, I can remember? And I, I remember one memory of being in high school and I was on yearbook and part of your job if you're you were on yearbook was to sell ads and I had sold an ad to like the local best western in our town to advertise in the yearbook and the guy had like photocopied me like the the clip art that he wanted in the ad the manager um and then I I remember I lost it or I misplaced it. I couldn't find it and I was freaking out and tearing apart my backpack and all my bike and just like my room looked like a tornado had hit and it I, like my anxiety spiked and I remember like thinking like oh my god it's not gonna be it's not okay to make this mistake it's not I, like I, there's no way I could go back to this person and just say like hey I lost your clip art can you give me like another copy of it please like that was like the most terrifying Thing for me and and like yeah now that I'm thinking about it like I remember schoolwork and mistakes um, were intensely terrifying to me and anxiety producing for me and I was not um, a perfect student at all like I, I was good at some subjects but like you know calculus was extraordinarily anxiety inducing for me and I you know I was like a C math student um, and I think, I think for me, the like the root of anxiety is, or what it means to me now is, it's fear of the future. And and actually, as I'm talking about this, I'm like, oh, it's also like fear of shame, right? It's like fear of the future, fear of shame. Um, and let's see, I can try to speed up my story a little bit. I, I started to, um, the first time I was, I think, treated for anxiety um, was when I was in my mid-20s and I um, was having a lot going on with work and a, a similar kind of thing where I was, had too much to do and not enough time and then, you know, making mistakes would make my anxiety spike or whatever. And so that was the first time I think I took an SSRI for it didn't, as I talked about on the depression podcast, like didn't find it particularly all that helpful. Um, and that might've been the first time I was actually diagnosed with generalized, general, quote unquote, generalized anxiety disorder, which, I mean, I'm not a doctor, but now I kind of realize like, it doesn't really mean anything. <laughs> like it's actually like trauma, right? I've come to realize that it's actually like trauma for my my childhood and the, the manifestation of that. Um, and yeah, I can talk a little bit about more about like the tools I've learned to use um, with it. I think. Well, let's, let's hold off on that. Yeah. Let's, yeah, let's later. let people land on that. Yeah. With all the tools. Yeah. Piece. And here we're doing the, what it was like. Yeah. yeah. So that's what it was like. Um, what about uh, symptoms or how other ways that you sort of growing up or as a young person, you felt like your anxiety manifested? Can Sorry, can you uh, say the first part of that question again? Um, growing up, you know what I mean? Symptoms, how you think your anxiety manifested, mm -hmm. fear of making mistakes. Yeah. So what do you have I... any panic attacks or anything like that or? 
I did not start having panic attacks until recently, actually, <laughs> uh, which is a, a fun part of recovery. Um, I, yeah, I would say my anxiety manifested a lot growing up in perfectionism and also like um, self-consciousness and then perfectionism around my appearance, like feeling insecure at school because I had the wrong outfit, quote unquote, wrong outfit. Who knows if I actually did or not, right? Or um, yeah, just feeling very self conscious growing up and and now I see like oh underneath that was just like a lot of shame that I was carrying with myself um yeah I'd say perfectionism self-consciousness um in relationships trying to control other you know doing the same thing basically my mother did trying trying to control other people's behavior so that I would feel less anxious um that kind of thing Right. Yeah. Stacey, what yeah. about you? What about what it was like for you? Um, well, I feel like Megan's already telling some of my story. Uh, yeah, definitely some similarities um, with family of origin. Uh, really anxious mother, um, very anxious, and hearing stories about her anxiety when she was a child. So there was already kind of that mythology of anxiety um, in my family, at least on my mom's side. And then my dad was the the raging one. So that, you know, produces its own type of anxiety to just be out of the way of this angry person who might, you know, set their sights on you next. Um, of course, I didn't know that at the time, but now I can see through recovery and all of my work in therapy that that was basically like Megan was saying, um, like laying the groundwork for this thread of anxiety that's pretty much always been there. Um, I don't remember consciously feeling anxious, you know, again, outside of like what was just in the water in my family, what was like, oh, this must be, you know, what a family does. I don't remember like acute kind of episodes until, as we've talked about, um, around the same time, depression started coming up for me. So it's like both of those became very acute. You know, there are two sides of the same coin um, as anorexia started to take hold. It was just all around the time when I was, you know, 11, 12, 13 getting to that point where I really started to understand that the adults I was living with could not meet my emotional needs, could not help guide me through, you know, the terrifying stages of life that I saw before me. Um, and so that really, that and anorexia and through the, the numbing of all that behavior was part of how I first dealt with anxiety. You know, that's um, really how I see a lot of that now. Um, and then for me, that I'd also manifested very much. Um, and actually, now that I think about it, yeah, before even that period, the perfectionism also took root around those, you know, same things. Um, kind of like, I don't know, yeah, which is the bigger one. If I imagine like a, a tree or a plant and let's say the primary one is... Um, anxiety and then perfectionism was like this vine that was like growing up around that tree like wrapping around it together you know when you see one of those trees that has like a vine that's basically like attached to the whole thing those things are very much connected um and it, yeah and especially as megan said like anxiety being not just fear of the future but it's like fear of the truth i think that's really how i've come to understand it it's like 
fear that, and the shame is definitely part of that too, but like fear that people will find out like what's really true about me. And now I recognize that as, as shame as well. That was a, you know, another core part of my family, but I didn't know that at the time. So the anxiety is really all I could identify. I was like, what if people find out, you know, I didn't really know what it was. I thought they would find out, you know, just that I was really this terrible person underneath, you know, that's what the shame is. But being conscious of that and then perfectionism presenting itself as a solution. Um, and again, this was not a conscious choice, but having to be very high achieving in school, you know, everything I did had to be perfect. I actually earned the name Miss Perfect in school, which I'm not proud of now, but like other kids would actually call me that because like my handwriting was perfect and like everything I turned in was like picture perfect. And um, there was a lot of rigidity around that. Um, so yeah, I think perfectionism was its own kind of weird coping mechanism for the anxiety. It's like, if I'm just perfect enough, right? And then if anything ever, if I ever made a mistake, then I just had to be more perfect, right? And that was another way of sort of mitigating um, this anxiety about anyone like seeing the real me or seeing, you know, the truth. Um, and then it quickly accelerated for me, you know, as the anorexia accelerated, um, the anxiety did not get better, but I somehow, you know, again, in my disease thought, again, if I just control my weight more, you know, if I just have more control, if I become more perfect, uh, it'll somehow be a solution. Um, that evolved into uh, binge eating for me was a, a way kind of also chemically to um, just kind of calm myself down, um, you know, the process as well. But as that started to evolve and then quickly going into alcohol and drug use, which I very much see as, um, you know, the self-medicating that was just a way to to calm down the voices in my head that were constantly going, constantly um, had a whole endless chatter about, you know, what was going to go wrong next and what I needed to do about it and how perfect I needed to be. And it, I, I loved it so much. <laughs> I loved the oblivion so much because it, it quieted those voices. Um, so that really, you know, it was like a solution and it really did work for quite a while as far as, um, decreasing anxiety itself. I was also, as I mentioned on the depression podcast on various antidepressants, which also can work, you know, on anxiety as well. That wasn't technically identified for me at that age early on, but you know, those also can have effect. And eventually as I was still drinking, um, using drugs, this was probably, this was getting more towards the end of my drinking or I'd say, yeah, in my mid twenties about. So this is getting into the, my last few years before I got sober. Um, I started experiencing panic attacks, really intense panic attacks. And I see part of that as some of that is just an effect of alcohol. If you're drinking enough and your body's res responding by um, basically turning on um, kind of certain aspects of your brain and vigilance just to respond, to try to fight back against being like shut down all the time unnaturally, you know, it's kind of like my body's my body's way of um, just kind of reacting to that. And then of course that I wasn't dealing with all these things that were fueling the drinking and drug use and the fact that the drinking wasn't working anymore. Um, so I basically went through grad school experiencing really intense, regular panic attacks. Um, I would go on walks in the middle of the night on a very regular basis because I would be in the middle of a panic attack and couldn't sleep. I would just be like walking around um, I would be, I had panic attacks like 
in the middle of a presentation, um, you know, at different times on the bus on my way to, to school. Those continued after I got sober. So um, as I was in my early teaching career, you know, experiencing panic attacks at work sometimes, definitely in more heightened kind of situations where I was on the spot. Um, and they started to abate a few years, I don't know, maybe two, two years into recovery because of all the work I was doing, variety of reasons. Um, but yeah, that's kind of like what it was like for me. Can I just echo, I, I wanted to echo Stacy's um, uh, thing around the food and the alcohol. So that was like a huge, hu obviously huge uh, coping mechanism for me. And it's, it's something that I think I learned. So my, my dad was also a rageaholic and, you know, the, the constantly having my adrenaline spike from that and then the, the fear of, you know, his explosions. I think that I found the food at a very early age to be able to just like bring down my nervous system and moderate my nervous system. And that very much um, continued into adulthood. And then I think I'd, I'd say like my college mid twenties found alcohol, which was amazing for a while. It was great um, in terms of just turning the the volume down on that. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, there's a lot that I, my story echoes. Uh, the thing that when I think about telling my story is, is that, um, of course, I have all this self-awareness uh, today, but uh, I, I look back and see my anxiety a little bit differently, uh, which doesn't mean it won't resonate for you, but just that, you know, because of the early trauma and my biological father being uh, domestically violent, and then my dad that raised me uh, being um, uh, physically threatening, uh, but emotionally violent with his posturing and his rage, you know, and then again, like, this is like, is it nature? Is it nurture? I did, you know, being a rambunctious child, but I think that my, my anxiety is so tied to, and this is what I hear you guys saying too, to my PTSD. I mean, that's where my anxiety comes from, except that I was so disassociated from my emotional body that I actually wasn't experiencing any feelings of anxiety. I had a lot of energy. And, um, and so I just constantly had, and what I know now having, you know, HPA disorder, which is hypothalamus, pituitary, adrenaline disorder imbalance, um, is that I had been basically since I was little, I'd been running on adrenaline. And so I didn't have any uh, emotional experience of being anxious at all. I had, you know, I was like the walking dead, you know what I mean? And, and not in a sort of like emo goth way, but just in a sort of living from the neck up way. And yet, of course, I was, I'm very, I'm a very emotional person. So then I would have these emotional bursts. And also, so my mom, I really believe is, um, as much an alcoholic as she is a sort of undiagnosed bipolar, or she's probably on the spectrum. 
you know, just those dramatic swings. So again, like you guys, I can't, I never knew what my house was going to be like. I never knew like, and neither one of them had a, a regular job in the sense that they didn't have a nine to five job. They had flexible schedules that changed week to week, sometimes in the day, sometimes my mom, my dad uh, worked in the car industry. And so some nights, some days he would work, some nights he would work, some weekends he would work. And my mom worked for the YMCA. And so some classes she taught at night, some classes she taught in the day, some, sometimes there were weekend events. So I net, there was no, so first of all, there was no structure in the house, just built in on their schedules. And then there was no structure built in on their personalities. Like every day was, who are you going to be today? You know, who, what am I dealing with today? So just, so even though I, you know, I call it anxiety, it was just sort of constantly living on high alert. And how I started to, in terms of looking back, how my anxiety started to manifest itself symptomatically was through insomnia. At 13, I started, you know, actually more like 12, 13, I started having insomnia. I had such bad insomnia and I just lived with it. But the other thing is, is that I was, I always describe to people that, you know, a normal body when it's in neutral is at like zero to 1000 RPMs, a body that's PTSD, we're always at 2,500 RPMs, if not 3000, depending on where we are. Like when I'm in neutral, I'm at 3000 RPMs today. You know what I mean? And so when I go get tests about my adrenaline, I'm actually outside. I'm an outlier. I'm outside of the range of normal when I'm resting. I'm actually, my adrenaline is pumping higher than the high average for other people. And your, your adrenaline is supposed to go down at night. And mine spikes at night because there would be nights where both my mom and my dad were home. And then who knew what the night was going to be? Were they going to be in love that night? Were they going to be at war that night? All I had to do was get out of the line of sight. You know what I mean? And there was only so much that I could do. So, so again, I, I had no, but by living from the neck up, I was not, I had no way, I was like a rock. You know what I mean? I was not an anxious person. I was the person that everyone came to to anchor to and talk to about all their problems with, you know what I mean? Cause I was just this steadfast stalwart person, but internally, you know, the anxiety was manifesting and coming out in disturbed sleep. Also, I, I wasn't having panic attacks, but I would have um, PTSD symptoms. And I remember that I just lived with it. And, and one of them, they're so, some of them are so innocuous. Like I would, I would, if I were walking by, a bush, as soon as I walked by the bush, a violent image of someone jumping out of the bush and attacking me and then having an, a, a, you know, a <gasps> to that was just part of the game, you know what I mean? Or driving and, you know, if I was driving close to an edge, just seeing my car just veer off and die. I mean, just constantly having these violent, you know, anticipatory anxiety you know, um, images. The other thing was 
always walking into a room and immediately needing to assess the entire room. Immediately need, and this is where I got, you know, such a reputation for being so um, empathetic and intuitive because I could just read a room or I could just, because every day that I came home, I had to read the house. I had to read my parents. I had to read everything. And it got to the point where I remember walking home and it's this, I actually wrote a short story about it, which is I kept, but I can't read again about just coming home. And when I turned the block in high school and when I turned the block, turned the corner onto my block, this whole shutdown thing would happen. And then it's like, I would go, it was like, we're going in you know, and it was like, and I would, and I could, it's like, I would run through my mind what I needed to do. Okay, we're going to walk to the front door, we're going to open the front door. All you got to do is you got to turn left, you got to turn right, you got to go to the end of the hall, and you got to turn left into your room, shut the door. You know what I mean? And I would do that. And as soon as I got up towards my door, like I would just shut down, and just try to get in the house and try to get to my room where I could just shut the door. And if I could do that, you know, without anyone noticing, then it was, I had a chance. So that's kind of what it was like for me. And it wasn't, I mean, I just had no, I had, the other thing is, is that when I, let me, like when I was a kid, I was so revved up that my dad would often make me run around the block. You know what I mean? I was just so like, and he'd be like, Nick, go right now, fucking just boom. I would just race that block, come back, and it's like nothing. You know, and he'd be like, go run around it again. And then, because again, having all this adrenaline to just burn off. And when I was in college, what I ended up doing in high school and college is that I, I found scenarios or groups of people or chaos that matched my own internal drama level, you know what I mean? And so meaning like I was ready for a crisis. I was ready for a very intense, complicated scenario. And so I just went and found them, you know what I mean? It's what I knew, it's what I grew up with and that's what my body was a, a, accustomed to, you know? And so if you put me in a quiet environment, well, based on my experience, and the bipolarism of my own house, you know, this was the calm before the storm, you know? And so I, I would find chaotic situations, like for example, in trying to get into Berkeley, I, I became an officer in seven clubs. I founded one of them, by the way, of course I did, you know what I mean? While trying to do, you know, a full load and everything like, I mean, that's what I mean, like I matched like, it's like, okay, I'm, I'm at 80 miles an hour, so I need a scenario that justifies me being at 80 miles an hour. Um, and so it wasn't into, and then that's when college, when I discovered marijuana, like alcohol was great. I loved vodka. Of course I did. But, you know, I didn't enjoy like throwing up, you know what I mean? That came later with bulimia, but, but pot you know, kind of like what Stacy was talking about, what we had talked about on another discussion was, it's like the pot just brought me down to just 1000 RPMs. 
it was just the most amazing thing that I'd ever experienced in my life. And so that's the drug that I, that I really came close to bottoming out on. And the only reason why I say I came close is it did ruin my life and it did start my recovery. But when I got into Marijuana Anonymous, it was a very great program, but it was so easy for me because I just had the food. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't experience any difficulty in MA, you know? And so it's like, it was like this superficial addiction that it's like, oh, okay, sure. I'll put it down, mm-hmm. you know? And then I just picked up the sugar again. Mm-hmm. And then, so that's kind of more what it was like for me. And I also, I remember the first time I had a panic attack was in college giving a presentation. And, and I know you guys will appreciate this. I was supposed to do a presentation on a a female, a feminist philosopher. And of course, when I went to do the presentation, I expected myself to be an academic expert (laughs) on this feminist philosopher. And so in the middle of my presentation, I realized I was getting into a concept that I actually didn't quite grasp and here's the part that I love I was totally like this I was talking like this and I was doing great and all of a sudden I knew I was going into this concept that I didn't know very well and I felt like I was gonna die but I was still talking like this and I just said would you excuse me for a second walked off the stage walked out of the room walked outside fell the fuck apart And that's when my, someone can, they're like, what the fuck happened? You know? (laughs) But for me, what that sort of, again, is my, this is, I talk to you guys about this a lot, like my ability to front, Mm -hmm. you know, and that total disconnect. They had no idea how I was feeling. Mm -hmm. None. And I didn't either. I did not expect that to happen. You know, and so when my professor came out and saw me lose it, that's when she came back in and said, okay, you guys, <laughs> you know, what I mean? mm-hmm. you do not have to become experts on this, you know, but that pressure, that perfectionism, that whatever. So that's what it was like for me, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, and so now I kind of want to switch gears around what it was like. And then in terms of, let's talk about like, you know, what happened in this part, you know, like going from getting a nice label, which is helpful, you know what I mean? And then, and now we kind of have to, where do you think from the time that we're kind of using the, what it was like, what happened, like, you know, but from the time you started to understand your, your diagnosis or whatever, you know, and then your journey with, first of all, having to own that diagnosis, you know, um, and then bringing it into your recovery, you know, and what's that like trying to work a a recovery program while at the same time learning that you, that anxiety PTSD is a real thing. And maybe, and again, you can interpret that question any way you want. Now I'm trying to get into like, okay, now you know it, you're in the rooms you have anxiety, PTSD, and you're trying to work a 12-step program. Stacey, why don't we start with you? Sure. Um, yeah, it's such a, such a journey just with um, learning 
what all that is. It's like, I already learned some before recovery, um, just as far as, you know, getting a diagnosis, being on some medication, things like that. Uh, my own research. Um, but yeah, as you talked about, um, Oh, can you hear me? Okay. It's telling me my speaker isn't working. You're, you're getting a little staticky, but keep going. Okay. Um, sorry. I figured you could edit that if I had to check. Um, so yeah, once I was in the rooms and I put down alcohol first and I went straight into or back into food, um, and sugar. And so, yeah, it's like, I was still using that as my, um, my anxiety kind of self-medicating. And it was in those first like couple years really of OA when I was starting to learn to put the food down and feel the feelings and understand where these feelings were coming from. And, you know, understanding that anxiety is just a top layer, kind of like how I talked about with depression. Like there's a lot of things underneath that. That's just like the tip of the iceberg. And with the recovery piece is looking at, okay, if I'm feeling anxiety, you know, starting to understand how shame works, starting to understand perfectionism and how that's tied to shame. Um, fear, you know, as a fundamental kind of um, modus operandi. Um, so starting to understand kind of those concepts and seeing how, okay, when the anxiety comes up, I have to start doing this investigation of all these other things. Now that I understand what all these other things are and I understand how they show up in my life or I'm starting to, um, I had, I started to deepen my understanding of just what the anxiety, how it shows up for me, why it shows up for me, you know, all those types of things. Um, and for me in my recovery, it's also, you know, the outside help piece has been really big, you know, so as, as much as like the language of recovery and again, just understanding uh, simply the concepts uh, and really understanding what the emotions are. Like I did not truly understand, you know, fear and how it actually works and how, what a core of addiction it is and how anger is connected to fear, you know, all those types of things. I, I definitely credit to the rooms and the 12 steps and uh, the big book and all of our literature. But along with that, you know, I had to be addressing this with outside help because I was not going to be able to deeply continue really addressing my anxiety and depression um, without regular therapy, without, you know, ongoing forms of support in a variety of um, uh, Chinese medicine kind of approaches, um, you know, naturopath kind of approaches. Um, and then most recently, I guess this has been in the last, about three years um, getting to an, yet another layer um, and that was really the first time I started to see my childhood as involving trauma and um, actually having some understanding of that I have some PTSD and that is not a label I would have given myself at all um, when I first came into the rooms I had a very specific idea of what you know PTSD and trauma was and who it applied to you know, basically like combat veterans, you know, it's about just about, and maybe, and sexual abuse sur survivors. Um, but I have a much broader and deeper understanding of how PTSD works. And so that's been another uh, huge piece, a huge tool and piece of growth um, to then be able to use that um, to do some EMDR therapy, to really be getting on to that deeper level of, you know, neurological recovery that's part of this and then of course that's also so i view it as 
um, these things inform each other, right? It's iterative as far as like what I learn in my recovery informs my outside help and what I learn in outside help informs my recovery. And these things are always working together. Um, so that has really deepened as I've done work in ACA um, as well. You know, all of these things have helped me deepen my understanding of the roots of anxiety and then how it still shows up and how I address that now. So. Great. Thanks. Megan? Yeah. So um, I will say my recovery journey has been progressive. Let's use that iterative and progressive. And the first sort of outside help recovery thing that I did for myself when I was about 18 years old is I found meditation. And I am so grateful that I found meditation at the age of 18 because that was the first experience that I had of being able to calm down my nervous system and be present with the moment without having to use food. Um, and so let's see, I, I was sort of meditating on and off um, throughout my 20s. And then at 26, I came in to OA. Um, but for all of my 20s, I was living in San Francisco. So I got I can't remember what age I was when I actually got like an anxiety diagnosis, but it, I, at the time I did not find it particularly helpful um, be, because my healthcare provider at the time was just like, well, here's some SSRIs. Good luck with that. You know, it was like not very holistic. And now that I look at how I was living and where I was living and what I was doing for work, like, like, See, everyone has an anxiety disorder in San Francisco. Like it was just normal living in and working in tech. It was just like, oh yeah, of course you work like, you know, 14 hour days and then go out to the bars and drink with your friends and are super hungover the next day. And then of course I'm binging or, you know, it was just like this sort of, I see it now and I, I see how like just very unmanageable my life was in so many ways. And the way that the the anxiety was just sort of threaded through that and normalized. Um, and it's only sort of being out of it um, that I, I'm now able to see how kind of insane it was to, to live like that. Um, and yeah, so I, I would say, um, so moving to Portland and sobriety from alcohol happened for me at about the same time, about four years ago. And that um, added a layer of recovery where I did not, I did not realize before how much my drinking was creating unmanageability in my life and relationships too, that I, like I had to get alcohol sobriety first before I could get sobriety from like codependence and a lot of my crazy behavior in relationships. And so it's not even that like, I, it's not even that the diagnosis meant that much to me because I think that I have just been dealing with anxiety, you know, so much my entire life. It's more that, um, over the years as I've incorporated more tools of recovery. And so like Stacy, I also do um, a lot of outside help and uh, Nicole, thanks to working with you the last couple of years. I'm also, you know, doing EMDR and looking at my PTSD and family of origin stuff. And it's just like, my life has gotten progressively more manageable 
and the the adrenaline spikes of anxiety, which used to happen, you know, all the time, um, are pretty pretty rare for me now. You know, I might have a really stressful day at work. Yeah, knock, knock on wood. Um, that sort of puts me in that that place again where I feel really stressed out and like my adrenaline is just super amped up. But um, most, you know, that used to like working in San Francisco, that was like every day of my life, my adrenaline was spiking and then I was using either food or alcohol to sort of moderate it. Um, and life has just gotten progressively more manageable and calm. Yeah. So that that's what I'll, I'll say about what it's like now and different. So let's focus on a question for people who might be listening around, you know, and I'm going to botch this slogan up. Maybe you guys know it or remember it, but it's kind of like, if you want to know what you're eating over, stop eating. So basically it's kind of like, okay, you know, I want to sort of dilate on two things because the things that I focus in on this podcast are, are eating disorder and adult children, alcoholic, um, you know, slash Al-Anon. So it's like coming into the rooms and being asked, especially when, by the time I hit OA, because, because of, you know, I, I could drink and I did drink on occasion, um, but drinking wasn't really my thing. I had to give up drinking because of the sugar. But the point is, is that it's like at some point in my recovery journey, um, you know, I had to get very sober, you know, and so I, you know, so I, I wasn't, I mean, of course I was acting out in other ways because, you know, the whack-a-mole thing, maybe I was working 80 hours a week or maybe I was, you know, absorbed in a relationship or whatever, but let's just focus on the substances, you know, giving up the substances, having to put the food down. So having to put down the medication that was managing my anxiety. So it's kind of like, and as a sponsor, I have this experience a lot where people come in the rooms and we're like, okay, you gotta put the food down. So then they put the food down and the anxiety just comes way the fuck up. Um, and it's like, okay, well, you know, for some of us, I'm always grateful that you bring up the meditation because you gotta find a way to navigate that while you're learning, you know, and doing the steps to, you know, sort of uncover, like, what is driving this fear? You know what I mean? The fourth, you know, the first, second, third, well, the first, second, and third step are like, will you just trust this process? Please give it a chance. And then the fourth and fifth is kind of like, we've got to find out the shape of this fear that is driving you. And, uh, and then of course, try to do the surgery on it in six and seven and eight and nine. And then you gotta keep, you gotta keep doing this thing, you know, and you, you, gotta, you don't get to graduate. So looking at, now there's that piece, but there's also, and I know that um, Megan is more recent with this, just because you, relative to Stacy, you've recently done your fist up around. Also the powerlessness over finding these stressful environments that match your, your anxiety level. Like, you know, again, this idea, it's like, so again, the powerlessness, oh, well, now that I know that I'm an anxious person, how can I fix this? You know what I mean? Which is the same as like, well, now that I know that I'm a little overweight, what's the diet? 
You know what I mean? It's like, okay, no, 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 no. This is 12 step. We're powerless over the effects of growing up in an alcoholic slash and or dysfunctional family, you know, and then we're powerless over the desire to self-medicate with food. So if you can sort of think about and maybe even speak to a newcomer who's like, okay, I came into this room. I'm identifying with everyone. I'm putting the food down. And now I feel like my emotions are going to kill me. Do you have any experience around? Can you share your experience around anything like that? Yes. Let me see if I can articulate it. I mean, um, let me just think, think for a second. Um, yeah. So I think the step work, right? The step work helps us learn how not to put ourselves in those insane chaotic situations again. And, and as you said, Nicole, like I, I'm very, very close to that now. And one that is um, coming up for me a lot is that I uh, like to be the, the savior and the hero in incredibly chaotic and dysfunctional work situations. And then, you know, I'm trying to like steer the ship and, and tape the hole, you know, in the bow of the ship that's leaking out at the same time. And it's, you know, incredibly stressful and anxiety inducing. And so now I, whenever I notice that I am, am promising too much or trying to be the hero in a situation, what I rely on is humility. That like, maybe it's not my job to fix this thing. And, and or maybe this is not my core competency. Maybe this is not, you know, what I should be doing. And like set, setting limits and boundaries for myself. But um, to, yeah, it's, for me, it's like, it's all intertwined. So like the steps help with that. But if you're not at the steps yet and you feel like your feelings are gonna kill you, that was where, um, meditation and my experience in meditation really helped me in early abstinence and then i i will also have to say like i think that a lot of my food sobriety just went into alcohol for the first couple of years that i i was in program um but yeah uh meditation and then um in the last couple of years it's been addressing like you know, why are mistakes at work so triggering for me? Like, you know, and what's the PTSD and trauma underneath that? Like, let's heal the, the source of the, the wound. Um, and, and so it's, yeah, again, it's like an, an iterative process, like one to get um, more awareness around where am I just matching my chaotic family of origin and let's try to have different behaviors. But then when that stuff comes up to be able to have ways to self self soothe and, and process through um, those spikes of adrenaline or those very like stressful times uh, also. And also talking to my sponsor is a wonderful tool. <laughs> yeah. Stace. Um. Yeah, I also have to echo the use of meditation. That's one thing I'm really grateful for. I kind of forgot until Megan brought it up that I don't remember um, who kind of led me to it. But early on when I started uh, AA, I don't think I was on the 11th. No, I know I wasn't on the 11th step yet, you know, so I wasn't like officially working on prayer and meditation. But 
someone, and this might have also been, I think I had like started acupuncture for the first time around that time when I was new in AA, and so she may have turned me on to it. But anyway, I'm just really grateful that I was directed toward meditation uh, early in my recovery. Um, and I remember the first time living in this old crappy apartment. It's the last apartment I've lived in where I was still drinking. Um, and I was still living there when I got sober. And I remember buying this little meditation CD and, you know, putting it into my little stereo there and like trying, you know, a, a kind of formal meditation for the first time, you know, listening to this guided meditation. Um, and that became something that I could just tell the way that I felt listening to it the first time. There was just something really soothing about it. There was something about the energy around it. It was taking me to some place that was like, oh, right. There's this other, there's this home within me. I know it's in there. I haven't been there for a while, but I know it's in there, right? It's part of my core self that I can like drop down into, right? That's like in our heart and our gut. And it was like, oh yeah, it was kind of like, just opening that door a little bit, um, taking me out of my buzzing head. And, you know, this, this particular woman's soothing voice and the music and everything else was like, just a really good um, kind of way to try it out. And so I, luckily, I liked that enough that I started exploring all, all kinds of other meditation as well. And again, I'm grateful that I continued things like acupuncture and um, alternative medicine that was also supporting me trying various types of meditation. Um, I've also, I have been doing yoga for at least about 20 years now. So definitely when I was still in my active addictions. Um, so I'm grateful that I found my way just there anyway. And because that became something in recovery that I have continued to do and have really um, drawn upon the less physical aspects. I mean, the physical part is important, but, you know, I used to just use yoga as a workout kind of primarily, and I've really uh, drawn upon it for the, the meditative aspects and the, you know, moving emotional energy um, and the spiritual and emotional part of it, which is actually the core of yoga, turns out. Funny how, you know, Westerners, how we've, how we've twisted that, right? Not a surprise. Um, so uh, yeah, I've used those things. I still use them regularly. Um, the other thing, and I think Megan, one of you mentioned this, um, is becoming really conscious of our cultural anxiety that like not only was it in the water of my family, like it's in the water, right, for all of us. And just learning more and more about being able to see it and realizing I can make choices that either support my serenity or that will continue to perpetuate anxiety that like I can make a lot of choices around that actually um so and a lot of times that still involves like rejecting some things that are difficult um you know choosing not to participate in certain things um oh here's just a concrete example but it's been very helpful um I struggled for a long time in early recovery about whether I should be on social media or not, or I was on social media and I didn't understand why every time I logged off, I felt horrible. Like I was like almost literally shaking sometimes with anxiety. Um, and it took like several years, really only within the last like couple years, have I really come to terms with, I cannot be on social media. It does not work for me. It is simply not worth it. Um, and I can connect to people in all kinds of other ways, but I can't do it that way. It's too, there's too much input. There's too much stimulation. My brain can't filter it all out. 
Um, I'm too sensitive to every little, you know, bell and whistle I might see and something that might just fly by as I'm looking at something else. There's a lot of other things I could go into about it, but that's just kind of a daily self-care thing for me is like respecting myself and knowing myself well enough that that is one part of society that a lot of other people do that doesn't work for me and I don't have to feel bad about it. You know, that's a way of loving myself is to not subject myself to that. So there's a lot of other examples, you know, along those lines of other things I can choose not to do, or I can choose to do very thoughtfully um, and in moderation. Right now I'm also practicing thanks to reminders from Megan and other people, a pretty strict um, media intake, um, sort of abstinence as I've heard it described. Um, just knowing myself, knowing that I can't be looking at news and taking in media um, unattended and without boundaries. So I have to be you know, really thoughtful about that. Um, and you know, it really, those choices end up shaping my life. It shaped the way that my career looks today, you know, rejecting the way my career looked early on and the type of anxiety that I just thought was like part of what you did and part of life. And that I've since realized like, I don't have to participate in. And the other thing I'm, I've learned too is how contagious anxiety is. And that's how I think, you know, it spreads to us so easily from our families of origin, and that it also spreads, you know, throughout a culture and looking at how it can spread to me. And then again, what can I do to mitigate that um, and look at the choices that I can make to, again, not subject myself to unnecessary anxiety. Great. Yeah. Um, hold on. Okay. So I just want to, uh, again, I love one of the things that I love about uh, our little trio here is very similar and very different uh, experiences. And so I want to jump in and say that um, there's no fucking way I could have done any kind of meditation at all. Um, <laughs> my, I have started just like six months ago doing three minutes of meditation. It's not that I didn't want to do these things, but every time I would try to go to a yoga class or a dance class or a meditation class, I would have a great experience. And then afterwards, I would be so emotionally overwhelmed that I would just have to, um, uh, I would just have to, um, uh, what are, I don't even know what happened. All I know is, is that it's like, I would have this elated experience, this joyful experience, and then I would have this backlash of terror around being in my body. Um, I, I can articulate that today. That's not how I experienced it. How I experienced it was I would go and do these things. I would have a powerful experience and then I would never want to go back, you know? And so again, because of being a sex abusive survivor and, um, a, you know, domestic violence survivor and, fucking car crash I'm, my ace score is so high it's painful but just that it's um is that controlling my emotional body was is the last piece that i'm working on right now so coming into a recovery where that was the journey to come back into my body i could not start with meditation 
you know, I have to into my, my, I live in my head or that's where I found safety. And so into, I had to intellectually understand everything. Mm-hmm. And so I just want to say that because what it sounded like we just said was, Oh, if you're coming into the rooms and you're having anxiety, just start meditating. It's like, okay, well, I, I couldn't do that. And, yeah. uh, and it was through my anxiety that I was able to get some medication that kept my anxiety managed enough that I could show up and do the 12 step work and do the therapy. However, I do want to say that I did have an experience of because of the insomnia ended, I ended up being over medicated and I was having side effects that I didn't know about. Um, and then I found, and I had to live with that for about 10 years. And then I found a naturopath and a, uh, a sleep, regime and sleep hygiene so that I could just have my minimal um, anti-anxiety meds and then some naturopathic uh, supplements to help me fall asleep and stay asleep that had no side effects. So that's also part of um, my process. But I guess I just, you know, as you guys know, when I start working with with women who come into the room, I, I'm like, okay, well, if you're attracted to me, chances are you're a heavy hitter, you know, whether <laughs> you know it or not, you know what I mean? And so, and like I've talked about many times, this is not your first rodeo. You've gone through the steps, you've hit a plateau, you're either sliding backwards or you feel like you're sliding backwards or you're terrified of moving forward or there's some reason why you're like, oh my God, I'm gonna have to go through this again. And yes, you are. And that's when I always typically, before I even start to work with you, it's almost like my step zero is, okay, chances are you have some degree of PTSD. How are you supported in your outside health? You know, Mm -hmm. if you're not on meds, what are you doing, Mm i.e. medication or meditation practice to deal with your brain, you know, spinning in in your panic attacks that'll come up. So again, just wanting to kind of make sure that you have that firm, supportive base before we even start, because we're going to go into like bringing up the, you know what I mean? We're going to go into the anxiety. We're not going to, you're not going to run from it. You're going to run towards it. So, um, so let's end with, um, let's leave people with not only do we, the three of us have to learn to to live with anxiety on a day-to-day basis, but now we're in a COVID-19 situation. And, and I like, of course, what you said around, you know, anxiety is contagious. Well, the beautiful thing is, is that so is joy and kindness, you know? And so, um, you know, let's, let's sort of speak to, you know, for a month now, we've been on quarantine. We're, we're women who have an anxiety disorder and now the whole fucking world is anxious. And what are the tools specifically kind of let's focus on recovery, recovery tools that we've been using. Um, and let's go ahead and start with uh, you, Megan. Yeah. So I can speak to that a little bit. Um, I'm having a hard time hearing you, honey. Oh, uh what about now is that better okay um yeah i can speak to that a little bit i definitely had um a spike of anxiety when this all started but also the wisdom and experience in recovery to know what to do and so 
Um, as Stacy has already sort of spoken to, I've been I've ha I've been very good about titrating the information that comes into my head um, because. I'm like a heavy media consumer in normal times. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I watch a lot of news, all that, you know, the, the primaries are like my sports. Usually like I get very into all that. And I just knew like, there is no way I'm going to be able to do that with this. Cause I, I'm so, you know, I watch one news story about COVID-19 and, and my anxiety is up. So um, I've stopped listening to, you know, news related podcasts and, and stuff like that. And really, yeah, protecting the information that's coming in as much as possible. And then in terms of program tools, I mean, I, I feel like this has actually been a bit of a, a resurgence or a reconnection with a lot of the, like the program tools that they read at the beginning of every single meeting, which um, I was going to say, Nicole, to, to, to your point of like, when the when you think the feelings are going to kill you when you first get abstinent, I used a lot of program tools when I first started, and I hadn't been using them as much. And now I'm, I, I feel like everyone is using text more. Um, in our little sponsee group, we send check-ins to each other, um, which I have found to be um, incredibly helpful just to be in our you know our little sponsee sibling community. Um, making more phone calls, making more time for meditation. And then of course, um, going to meetings. I mean, I think one of the things I feel incredibly grateful for is just actually just for Zoom and the, you know, that so many meetings have moved on to Zoom, being able to do service around um, Zoom for some meetings has been really, really helpful. Um, and to, to know that when the anxiety starts to spike, like there, there's a recipe for it. Like there's tools for that that I can use. That I, it's a, a muscle that I know and can can work out. So I can make a phone call. I can send some texts. I can do a check in. I can um, go to a Zoom meeting. You know, all of those things are are available um, to me. So, yeah. Great. Thanks, Megan. Stacy. Um, so yeah, my routine has evolved and basically it's become pretty regular at this point. I'm starting almost every morning with an early meeting. Um, that's a luxury for me of quarantine where my partner is at home and can deal with the kids. And so I get up earlier than everyone else and start my day with a meeting. Um, and I'm doing a lot for those who do meditate, um, I'm doing a lot more meditation, like either around that time in the morning or sometimes other times. Um, getting outside every day, that's something I regularly do, but I found I can feel that also um, settling me and bringing my adrenaline and anxiety down, you know, just that natural human connection to, to nature and standing outside, um, whether it's in the sunshine or not. Sunshine helps, of course, but yeah, just being out in some fresh air. Um, lots and lots of check-ins, as everyone who's in my circle knows, obsessively checking in, but in a very helpful way, um, including a lot of fun, not a lot of fun, but at least some fun in my day. Some of, you know, everybody's day is some work and drudgery, but for me, this is where my kids are a blessing. Um, 
we're dancing all the time. We're being really goofy. We're, you know, playing music. Um, so just having these like bursts of joy. And I might've just like read a really sad headline like moments before. And then we're putting on the Madagascar soundtrack again and, you know, dancing to, I like to move it. Yeah, I like to move it, move it. Um, so yeah, making sure that fun is in there. And that also is in the form of, um, I listen to a lot of like, oh, how do I want to word them? Um, aspirational podcasts, you know, whether it's like spiritual, it's something that I look at as like for my higher self, but sometimes I just have to listen to like a trashy one, right? Or one that's just like, it's not necessarily doing anything to, uh, for my edification. It's just, you know, it's just something that's going to entertain me. Um, I also have been listening to uh, the Harry Potter audiobooks. So just having like some kind of escape, right? It's like a healthy escape. Um, and I would say that for early recovery as well. It's like, especially um, if meditation isn't working or when you know, like, we're going to have to get into the anxiety and why it's here and I can't use the food anymore or any of my other substances, I do get to have fun and like have some healthy escapes and, you know, have some media and stories and different things that I can just like sit and listen to or watch and relax. Um, so that is a big key. It's like, and our inner, our inner child really likes those too. Um, and then I'll just say when I am in moments of anxiety, they tend to come to me when I'm trying to fall asleep, you know, it's like the day is done. There's nothing to distract me. I'm sitting there in the dark and then it's like the anxiety starts cranking up. Um, and I just have to go through and say to myself those things that have been said to me of like, where are my feet? Like, okay, my feet are right here in my safe, warm bed in my house, you know, that's safe with my family who are all healthy right now. And then that leads me into like listing off a bunch of gratitude. Like, okay, let's go through, because I'll usually be hung on like spinning on something that I heard that day that was really disturbing, you know, things like that. And then going into like the future tripping and what ifs. It's like, okay, where am I right now? And then it's like talking to myself in the present moment. Okay, my feet are right here in my bed. I'm sleeping above my two healthy children. We have plenty of food in this house. I'm not eating all the food. Like, you know, I, I, sleep you know, I just go through and think Stacy means that her her bedroom is above on a second floor. Her oh yeah, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I should clarify. Yeah, that might sound a little odd. Yeah, uh, yeah. my children. My children are down. Yeah, my children are down. Yeah, on the the first floor, and I'm on the second floor. Yeah, and everyone's like peaceful and safe in our house. You know, we have enough resources. We have a really strong community, full of love, and you know, just kind of repeating. Sometimes I had to just repeat that over and over to myself. Um, and it does help. It doesn't always take away the anxiety in those really tough moments, but it does help bring it down a little bit. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, you know, it, I mean, of course, I think that now's the time for everyone to go read, you know, um, Man's Search for Meeting by Frank Merkel or whatever, Victor Frank or whatever. Anyway, Victor Frankel. Yeah. Thank you, Victor Frankel. But, um, but again, that you know, if, if people were to ask me, what am I doing? It's like, I am staying very close to my, um, my circles of love. And, and I have my friends circles of love and we're talking to each other more than we have ever talked to each other. And then I have, um, my, uh, my recovery tribes. And, um, and I think the importance of, 
uh, my recovery tribes is, and this is why the man's search for meaning is, is that, and I'm going to butcher this and misquote it, but you know, that again, that, you know, the, for those that survived, um, you know, the, the Holocaust that in his experience, in his, in, in his direct experience, there's those that survived. And then out of those that survived, the ones that came out of it, the least scarred were the ones that during it really tried to be of service to other people while, while it was happening. And it was just unconscious for them. They weren't, you know, but the point is, is that, you know, my translation of that is, is that they stayed emotionally connected, you know, and created, you know, these heart bonds while they were all going through this atrocity. Now, obviously what we're going through has is, is nothing compared to what they were going through. Absolutely not. But just the idea that it's like, yes, anxiety is contagious, but so is love, you know, and I, I live a life where I believe that love wins. Um, or I, and I have to choose to believe that, you know what I mean? People think that I'm an optimist. I'm like, no, I'm a realist. I just know that it's like, if I'm going to wake up and face the day together, I'm going to choose to put my, my money on love and vote on love and act as if, you know, that love is going to, you know, come out stronger here. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to suffer on the way there, but that's where I'm going to focus my attention because when I focus my attention on that, I like myself better and I like the way that I behave better than when I focus on, no, we're all going to hell in a handbasket. We're just going to, you know, totally annihilate ourselves and we're just working our way there right now. And when I live that way, I don't like how I am in the world and I don't like how I behave. Um, and I want to disconnect from everyone and I want to just isolate and just be like, I didn't sign up for this and I'm not going to participate. So again, in that sense, it's a choice. So I guess that's, you know, just a very long winded way of just saying like, you know, I use the tools so that I can be the most me that I can be and I can be in my body to the extent that I have the courage to be in my body every day. And then with my body, I then use who I am to create loving connection to other people around me. So the tools help me. And then what I do with my experience of being present is I use that to be of service and to connect with people I love and care for. And so that then feeds itself, you know what I mean? Because now I'm experiencing, you know, an interconnectedness of love which is what feeds like for me, why get up in the morning? You know what I mean? I mean, I'll have an existential crisis, you know, at the drop of a hat. But if I, if I wake up in the morning and think, what's the point of it all? There's no reason to get out of bed. But if I wake up in the morning and I think of, and I see the faces of the people that I love, then I want to get up. And then when I see the faces of the people that I love, I want to be able to be emotionally present so that I can have love to share with them. And in order to do that, I have to be um, sober with food and alcohol, drugs, and to be emotionally sober. And that's where I need my tools. And then Stacy's GRE word, what was it again? Inner. Oh, did I say it? What was that? Interconnectedness thing or the. 
you said it too, Megan. Interconnectedness. That the one um, feeds the other and the other feeds the one and oh iterative or an iteration. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that it all and then it just becomes how I live my life. You know, that the love feeds my desire to be present. And then my ability to be present expands my ability to love and connect. And then I have deeper connections and more love. And then I have more love. And then I want to get out of bed because I want to continue to experience this. That does not mean that I don't have pain and suffering, as we all know. Um, but because I'm so interconnected and because I feel the, the dominant feeling of, of love, I can show up for those hard feelings and I can show up and breathe through the anxiety, you know, and that's, you know, that's kind of, I don't know, that's a little long winded, but that's kind of how I try to just swim through the anxiety without dissociating or emotionally disconnecting, which means the same thing, but whatever, without disconnecting from it, just be present in it and know that it's an experience that I'm moving through, but that I, you know, at my core, am connected in love to people who care about how I'm experiencing my life on a day-to-day -day basis. And I care about how they experience their life. And we're walking through this together. Yeah. That's really beautiful, Nicole. <laughs> Thank you. So uh, any final thoughts before we sign off? I think that's a good place to end. Yeah. Okay, great. So, all right, everyone, thank you for signing up and signing in. And I'm sure the three of us will be back. We'll figure something really cool out that we want to talk about. So, cheers. <laughs>